VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Wednesday, August the 3rd. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's in the producer's chair. You'll be speaking with David when you give us a call to get in the queue on the air to talk about whatever's on your mind. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial, 273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, one 590 vocm which is 8626. So, what do you know? The first Wednesday in August, regatta day, don't you know? Guess not. So, the captain of the course and the vice president of the regatta committee took to the microphones at 6 a.m. this morning to say the regatta, no go. So, look, they're kind of damned if they do, damned if they don't. For the regatta committee, of course, maybe some consideration given to the concessionaires or along the uh, lakeside and the comfort of the patrons, but ultimately comes down to the safety for the rowers. Now, it at this moment in time is beautiful in town. Not a breath of wind. It's a perfect pond. But at some point, I guess they're expecting wind up to 40 kilometers an hour. And I saw someone say that. Are these people even from St. John's? 40 kilometers an hour? Who cares? There's a difference between 40 kilometers an hour if you're just out for a walk or a bike ride or playing golf or whatever. For the rowers, it can be a tricky day for sure. Uh, The opportunity to sink one of those boats in in a loppy pond is real. I don't know if it's the right decision or not, but that's the one they went with. I guess also looking towards tomorrow being an ideal day. Now, with some of the younger rowers, 40K, if it's sustained winds, can make for a long haul, regardless of the length of the course that they're rowing, but no go. So for those of you who played roulette last night, off to work you go. The question will long be whether or not this is an archaic tradition. I'm on the record. I don't mind it. I think it's unique and quirky, and it's just something I guess I'm used to. But when you look at people being able to have a predictable schedule, not everybody works Monday to Friday, 9 to 5, but let's just say that they bucked tradition. I don't even know why it's the first Wednesday in August, to be honest with you, why that's the day that we hold for the Royal St. John's Regatta, but... If the races were scheduled for Saturday, we'll say, then if Saturday is no good, then Sunday, for most part, people have a weekend that includes Saturday, Sunday, and the Monday would be the holiday. So you'd have three days where you really don't disrupt much. Now, of course, there's lots of people working, lots of businesses open on Saturday and Sunday. Of course there is. But it might offer more and more people, more predictable type of schedule. But anyway, the regatta, and apparently there was huge crowds down Lakeside last night. They looked at the weather forecast, thought, well, it's for sure going to go ahead, and now it's not. So I guess we're going to have to wait one more day as well for history to be made with the women rowing the long course. It's been since 1816 that the women were only able to row the so-called short course. Long been called the men's course and the women's course, I guess no more. So there's four crews that are uh, entered in that particular race, women's crews, to row the long course. So that's one more day for history to be made. So 71 teams, 20 races, one lake, two championships to be won tomorrow. Anyway, disappointing for some. I saw someone refer to it as a woke decision. <laughs> what, what does woke have to do with wind? But anywho, there you go. All right, uh, sticking with some sport. Uh, this of note, in 2003, Annika Sorenstam, of course, Swedish legend, she completed the career Grand Slam by women the, winning the Women's British Open that year, which was at Royal Lytham in St. Anne's Golf Club in Lancashire, England. 
Roy Lithum St. Anne's is also on the men's rotation, which they call the Rota. So Annika Sorenstam, such a legend, such a big name in the sport, can easily go by one recognizable name. She's just Annika. Great stuff. So that's back in 2003. She completed the career Grand Slam. There was a who's who on the leaderboard that day. So she finished one stroke ahead of C. Repack, who was a massive star in the day. Carrie Webb, Australian, of course. Grace Park, who was a massive star as well. So that was a great competition that particular year. And worth noting that Brooke Henderson, Canadian golfer, who just won her second major, only Canadian golfer ever to win more than one, she is the most successful golfer from this country and just has a massive opportunity to build on her legacy as a champion. There you go. This story is interesting. So whether it be to go to a sporting event or most notably to go to a concert, everybody knows just how expensive everything is, whether to be get it in and out of here and to get a ticket, especially when you go to websites, the selling platforms like Ticketmaster. Ticketmaster has an absolutely incestuous relationship with so many of the venues that host the biggest artists around the world. And they hold major hammer over their heads and the artists that they represent by selling their tickets. They've played heavy-handedly. There's been some antitrust claims settled against Ticketmaster, but here's what goes on. And this is one of the most recent stories includes the boss, Bruce Springsteen, back on tour. So people will go on the website to try buy a ticket, and all of a sudden, all that's available is what they call tickets that are at dynamic prices. So that's a shift based on the price of the ticket for the demand shown for them. So for the moderately or modestly priced uh, tickets, going for 5,000 U.S., there was many stories in the past. Taylor Swift fans looking for tickets, $1,500 US. It is completely and patently unfair. A lot of artists, including Pearl Jam, really tried to take Ticketmaster to task and to court to no avail. So, you know, when people are big fans of one performer, the Taylor Swifts of the world, Pearl Jam, the boss, whoever it is, it is just so grossly and patently absurd that the tickets can be manipulated by a selling platform like Ticketmaster, $5,000 US. That's not what the boss, that's not what Springsteen wanted to sell them for. Then they also impose a pretty heavy service fee in some instances as well, but it's uh, something else. If you're trying to go and see one of your favorite bands and you, you know you're sitting there with your partner or your buddies trying to buy some tickets to plan a vacation, a little getaway, catch a show, 5000 US. Not me, not many of you, I don't imagine can buck over that kind of money. All right, let's keep going. So we have talked a lot about, and so we should, the issue of the staffing shortages throughout the healthcare system delivery. Now, the bulk of the conversation took place surrounding family doctors. But we know it's not the only discipline that's facing a real problem inside of healthcare, whether it be registered nurses, LPNs, nurse practitioners, all the way down the line, pharmacists, social workers. Don't try to leave anyone out here. 600 vacancies, 900 additional nurses set to retire, 700 local nurses when surveyed said that they are thinking about or considering quitting their permanent full-time job to go for casual uh, position, allowing them to have some flexibility to have an easier way to manage their life and the work-life balance. Now, the province, even in recognizing that there is no quick fix available here, has provided, and it looks like if had coffee from the registered nurses union, thinks a sign of hope for nurses in an effort to retain them to try to deal with some of the burnout. It's a pretty comprehensive package. Whether or not it's going to work, I guess, remains to be seen, and it is absolutely short-term because the benefits are only available until the uh, 31st of October. They include retention bonuses available to registered nurses for a minimum of one-year commitment, signing bonuses for casual registered nurses to accept full-time or part-time positions, especially in areas of need, also a minimum of one year, double rate overtime for vacation periods. That one I find interesting. 
for nurses who are saying that they're overwhelmed and overworked and cannot commit to any of their children's activities or just a bit of that work-life balance that we all struggle to find. I wonder whether or not, in jobs past, working overtime, we were given the option to get overtime pay, time and a half or double time, and or to bank the hours for some additional time off, which I always chose. As opposed to paying more and more to the tax man, I'll take the day off for an additional eight hours work worth of overtime through the course of a week or whatever the case may be. But the double rate overtime for vacation periods and the ability to grant annual leave for nurses to reduce the number of mandated and extended shifts. Reimbursement for licensing fees and payment of liability insurance for retired nurses wishing to return during this designated period. There's also plans for more mental health supports, consideration of childcare options for those who don't work the standard nine to five. Bursaries now being made available for third year students in the Bachelor of Science nursing program. I mean, the numbers are really something. 600 vacancies, 900 set to retire, 700 thinking about moving from full-time permanent into casual. So something had to give. The nurses union, the registered nurses union, I guess that's the go-to voice for whether or not these are meaningful, will have the intended positive outcome. So in the suite of incentives that the province has dangled in front of, I don't know if that's the right word, that is put forward for whether it be doctors working in rural ERs, $800 a day additional monies, family doctor who sets up shop with a full roster of patients in the third year, and $100,000 bonus. Like there's things that are happening, but for so many of us, that doesn't deal with the immediacy of the concern, even though I will acknowledge, I think many of you will, there is no overnight that's it. Here's the proposal that's going to make it all better. But if you want to chime in on what you think about what the province is doing, or even things that you think they should be doing more of, like flexibility, not only for nurses, but some of the doctor stories that we've heard. I also read a story this morning regarding health care that I'm not 100% sure to know what to do with it, but it's about all of the disruptions and diversions of emergency rooms out in central health. So... The story goes that there were some 26,000 collective visits in one year. What a collective visit is, I'm not entirely sure. We're trying to figure it out. But they looked at ERs in Buckins, Bay, Vert, Harbor Breton, New West Valley, Fogo Island, Springdale. Monthly average in and around 363 visitors each. Doctors working in the ERs, one notable in the news story is Dr. Todd Young, who works at the Green Bay Health Center in Springdale, and of course Main Street Medical and Medicural. The community has less than 3,000 people. They had over 5,700 emergency room visits last year. He calls it exhausting. And we know, look, I've been told in the past that when I try to draw a line between the lack of family doctors and 125,000 of us who don't have one, inevitably, for some very fundamental issues that we would have uh, dealt with in the doctor's clinic, the GP's office, now people are forced to go to the ER. Consequently, the rooms are blocked, they're running at capacity or overcapacity, the wait times are extraordinary, and it's not me saying it, for folks who are just trying to get a routine test, blood work, get a prescription filled. Now, some of this stuff can and should be done by other healthcare professionals, pharmacists, for instance, when we're talking about prescriptions, but inevitably, if you can't see your family doctor and you simply need a routine test and to get referred for blood work or what have you, and you go to the ER... And you sit there for hours for something that would have been taken care of inside the GP's office in five, ten minutes. So, of course, it's having an issue. And then you add to it what are the long-term implications for folks living with cardiovascular disease, diabetes, other chronic illnesses, not being seen soon enough. So while we look at the amount of money spent on health care, we are probably <coughs> pardon me, seeing more and more people's complex chronic illnesses 
being becoming worse and worse and worse, and consequently the cost and the amount of time and the interaction with healthcare is only going to further exacerbate the problem. But that's some of the numbers. I'm not sure what to do with that six, 26,000 collective visitors over the course of a year to those six ERs out in Central, but there you go. I've read this, and uh, again, sometimes you really try to see where people are coming from, try to digest and absorb the stories to translate it to some comments and conversations we can have on the show. There was a program that was put in place in conjunction with the Canadian Mental Health Association and other members of communities uh, just on the heels of the COD moratorium. And th some 30,000 people lost their job, and it really changed the face of the province. So what it was, was a model put in place where whether it be trusted municipal leaders, members of the Rotary, members of the church, whatever the case may be, to get some training in what they're calling building helpful skills or helping skills. Now, this is not a replacement for the need to see a trained healthcare professional from a psychologist to a counselor to a psychiatrist and long-term access to mental health care. But if we can indeed fill the gaps as best we can so that seniors in particular to deal with their anxiety, depression, listlessness, and more, more often than not, their loneliness, in an effort to be able to allow them to age safely and happily at their home, which is something that we should indeed be working towards more and more, this program was put in place some 30 years ago. Is it ideal? Absolutely not. Does it really shine a bright light on the shortcomings inside the delivery of mental health, mental wellness, and mental illness in this province? Of course it does. And I think that's the case right across the country. So they will train community members to identify some basic therapeutic services, to know the types of questions to ask. It's not just here that it's ever been tried. In the United States, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, throughout the United Kingdom, some of these programs are in place. So for trusted members of the community, and they are not now all of a sudden through some basic training, mental health professionals, but if they can see the key warning signs, even when we're talking about the safety in your own home and the potential for fall and then consequently injured, I know it's not ideal. I don't really know much about it, but it's a really interesting news story. And some healthcare professionals chiming in, for instance, this one lady, Dr. Samir Sinha, the director of geriatrics at Toronto's Mount Sinai Hospital, and the folks at the Canadian Mental Health Association, talking about what the training can look like and how it can be part of the filling of the gaps, the backfill for the lack of some of these services in communities, especially some of the smaller rural communities. I really... It sounds like a good idea, but of course, when these things come to fruition, maybe just maybe it gives some folks at the Government Department of Health and Community Services to think that, well, now all of a sudden the community and the M Canadian Mental Health Association and others are taking up the slack and so we needn't worry as much as we really should. So it's not about alleviating the pressure on the department, it's alleviating the pressure on the individual. Maybe it could be part of the conversation, especially if we're talking about basic therapeutic skills. I mean, loneliness can really manifest itself in some ugly fashion, not only for seniors, but for all. So if someone with some basic training and checking in on to deal with some of the loneliness issues, which leads to depression, which leads to anxiety, which leads to the listlessness that's uh, itemized in this particular story, maybe that's something we can and should be talking about. Anyway, how are we doing on the phone, Dave? Just another one. So yesterday on the program, a couple of callers that are frustrated with the loss of the early French immersion program at Sacred Heart in Marystown. And of course, as usual, it took on a life of its own on my Twitter feed overnight. 
the thought was that maybe, just maybe, this year, with only five students enrolled in early French immersion, the, it will continue for those who've moved on to grade one. There's 10 of them. The thought was maybe just for this year, because it looks like a healthier number coming the year after, is that to put the kindergartners and the grade ones in the same class for a year. It got away from the Twitter feed. Of course, maybe some of the folks that chimed in didn't hear the conversation, but it wasn't about utilizing early childhood educators. It was about whatever support regarding the one homeroom teacher, maybe student assistance that would be in place anyway, to overcome this one year to keep the program alive because the thought for the families that are impacted on the Buren Peninsula is that if you lose the program, it's going to be very difficult to get it back. So it wasn't about combined classes being ideal or perfect or the only path forward. It was about preserving a program for years to come because I think the folks in the area are right. Once it's gone, it might be gone. And that's the worst case outcome, if you ask me. Anyway, a couple more quickies before we get going. So we know we've been through one round of some of the properties in the St. John's area owned by the Royal, uh, pardon me, the Roman Catholic Archdiocese of St. John's. 43 properties were in the first phase. They raised about $20 million. Now, based on a Supreme Court ruling last month, they've approved the plan to sell another 70 properties outside of St. John's, including six churches up on the southern shore. The church in Cape Royal, which is Immaculate Conception, the parishioners there are asking developers to go away. The price tag on the church is $189,800. And of course, that doesn't include ongoing operational costs and any maintenance and improvements that they'd like to put into the church. But, you know, you can only hope that developers can indeed abide by their wishes. Now, I know money is cold. Money makes decisions based on uh, the property value and the opportunity for return on investment, which doesn't very often take into consideration things like the prisoner saying, please stay away. So we know many of the properties here in the St. John's area staved off the developer bid. But it's really difficult to go up against the big dog and their deep pocket. Especially when some of these people, they acknowledge quite clearly that this is something very new to them. They're not even entirely sure how to go about it. And that is a very dear price tag for them to have to pay to preserve Immaculate Conception Church in Cape Royal. But I think those conversations are far from over now with the 70 additional properties outside of the metro region getting involved. And on that front of the deep pocket. This story is in its infancy in this country, but it's very, very real. We talk about the housing crunch. The interest rates rising, the stress test to get a mortgage more complicated than it has been in years past. Prices are out of whack. The rental crush here in the metro region is very, very real. The vacancy rate is so very, very low. In the United States, and of course, the lack of Canadian data makes it difficult, but there's some examples that do indeed shine a light on what might happen here. In the United States, whether it be hedge funds, private equity, pension managers, they're trying to deal with the volatility of the stock market to try to stave off pressure based on inflation, and they're buying single-family homes. Those types of entities own 28% of single-family dwellings in the, in the United States, 28%. You say, well, it can't happen. Why are we worried about what happens in the United States for all kinds of reasons? Well, there is certainly something to be said for some of the most recent examples, including Core Development Group in Toronto. They're a Toronto-based real estate firm. They announced last year they were going to spend $1 billion buying single-family homes in mid-sized Canadian cities. So it's absolutely happening. Blackstone, which is one of the world's largest, what they call alternative investment firms, they're pledging to expand their portfolio uh, in this country, set up an office in Toronto. They've got $14 billion in Canadian real estate assets. So just imagine all the homes that are going for over ask. 
the bump in interest rates, the mortgage stress test. How am I supposed to be able to compete with a head fund manager with endless amounts of money? So what we do about it, how we put controls in place, some things have happened based on foreign occupancy. You know, they put some, I think, pragmatic rules in place, how that is not allowed to the extent that it was in years past. But, you know, just think about it. You know, and I get it. Just because it happened in the States doesn't mean it's going to happen here. But this market is ripe for the intervention of those types of extraordinarily uber wealthy entities. But I just thought I'd throw that out there. All right, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. Time for a tune. Look, it's already getting a little more gray here outside. I came my road. 1968, creeping into the top 10. Cream. One of the supergroups, Jack Bruce, Eric Clapton, drummer Ginger Baker, they cracked into the top ten with this one, Sunshine of Your Love. When we come back, we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the mayor of St. Vincent, St. Stevens, and Peters River. That's Mayor Verna Hayward. Uh, mayor Hayward, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Um, I want to thank you for your help in the past. There in back in May, uh, we were successful, as you know. Um, and I really thank all the media that reached out to us and uh, and VOCM in particular. I became the newsmaker of the day, and I think I'm part of your ads. <laughs> but anyway, what I'm calling about this morning is uh, the fact that we do have the beautiful Wales Ever Beach in St. Vincent's. And I just cannot stress enough to the public who come to watch to stay away from the shoreline. Like it's, uh, if the whales are a couple of feet away from you, that means it's very, very deep. There's quite a drop off there. And uh, like we see children and sometimes adults uh, very close. And some of the locals have to tell them. But I'm hoping to use your airwaves uh, to uh, alert the public that it's not your typical beach. It's not a place to swim. And it's not a place to hang out right close to the water. So we just want people to stay away. We have signage, uh, like up near, you know, when you come into the area. But we cannot impress enough upon people to stay safe. And also, in light of what's happening with the uh, bird situation, there have been some dead birds spotted on our beach, and there's still some showing up. Uh, and we see some uh, pets that are not on a leash, or I, you know, personally, I wouldn't have my pets there probably. So, um, you know, that's an alert that's coming out from uh, the uh, biologist uh, that are telling that. So, you know, we can we can only impress upon people enough about safety, and uh, you know. Uh, we really hope that nothing happens. We don't want anything, any tragedies. We've had enough tragedies in our province this summer as it is. All you need to do is just think about it for two seconds. When you're uh, down on the beach in St. Vincent's, and we'll start with the whales, if they're so close to shore, then obviously the water is extremely deep, very close to the shore. I don't know what the drop-off would be, but for a humpback to be that close, 
obviously the water is quite deep and they're breaching it feels like you can reach out and touch them but just avoid the want to get closer than necessary you can sit 10 feet back from the shore or however far back and still be closer to a humpback than you'll ever ever be anywhere else in the world so that's a fair safety reminder and then of course we've got a problem that's plaguing a lot of beaches and a lot of different communities with the avian flu and the numbers of dead birds hundreds if not thousands have been found on the beaches the cleanup is slow because we don't really have the staff to deal with the outbreak to the extent that we're seeing so what are you seeing in your communities regarding the uh, numbers of dead birds oh we've seen several uh you know and there's still some showing up so they've i mean they have been there and they're they're showing up still like someone still saw some dead birds yesterday so you know uh i mean already i heard uh, bill Montevecchi, you know mention about the pets so you know, if it's, if it's dangerous for pets, it's probably going to be dangerous for people too. But I mean, the thing is, is that I would not have my pets, uh, you know, probably there. Uh, but I mean, that's up to people themselves. I did see a lady walk by with her little dog, and I, I, I mentioned to her, I said, I don't, I, I wouldn't have my little dog just walking along behind you. I said you should probably carry your dog and, and really be careful. So. You know, we just hope that people take it seriously and uh, be very mindful that, and even like I see so many people wear sandals, this is not a sandals beach. <laughs> and they're struggling to try to walk over the beach. This is a beach where you need sneakers, um, you know. And But I mean, the main thing that we want is people to enjoy the whales, but to stay safe. Uh, of course, and you know, it's another thing, when you park in the, probably the main parking area there on the St. Vincent's Beach, and the probably the best place to see the whales normally is well down to your left, it looks like it's not a very long walk, but on those big rocks, it's an extremely long walk, oh, it so is. it's worthwhile yeah. to real, realize what kind of shoes you're wearing if you're going to take on that beautiful part of the province. Uh, anything else you want to add this morning, Mayor, Mayor well, Hayward? Uh, the, um like in light of what Larry did last year, we have uh, like a lot of sand on the side of the road, and so we do have signage, so people seem to be abiding by that. We increased uh, the uh, space at both ends of the beach for parking. Uh, the action this summer right now is right near the Goth. So, uh, you know, people are parking there and people are mindful of the sides of the road and it doesn't seem to be an issue with people getting stuck in the sand this summer. Um, so, you know, we have signage saying that a soft shoulder, so people are mindful of that. And, and also I'd like to suggest to people to wear uh, layers uh, because it might be hot during the day, but in the evening if you still want to stay till sunset, uh, it gets cold and, you know, a bit damp. So, I mean, the whales are there, like, you know, 24-7 right now. And I live well over in the community, and I could hear the slapping last night. So, uh, you know, it's it's uh, pretty exciting and pretty enjoyable. Uh, but the main thing is that everybody has to be safe. 100%. And, you know, that's the comments and the goings, too, right? People get anxious to get to where they want to be, whether it be on the beach in St. Vincent's or whatever. Some of the roads are pretty tight and twisty and turny, so it's always a, a worthwhile exercise to recognize that you got time. I mean, as much as people feel like they're pressed for time, just, you know, watch your bobber when you're making your way, whether it be your community or anywhere up in and around St. Mary's. Uh, good to have you on the show this morning, Mayor Hayward. Well, you're always welcome. I'd like to mention, okay. too, like the tourists that there's the, to expect delays. Yeah. Uh, there's delays on Route 90 uh, coming through Seminole Line. Uh, there's delays at Coots Pond in uh, Riverhead. They're working on a bridge there. 
and there's delays in routine uh, in Rancapahedon country. So give yourself some extra time uh, if you're expecting to travel on the Irish Loop. Appreciate this. Nice to speak with you. Thank you very much, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. That's Verna Hayward. She's the mayor of St. Vincent, St. Stephen's, and Peter's River, St. Mary's Bay. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, some gas-saving tips in the queue. I could use it, and then we're going to talk a little healthcare, and then we're talking with you about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Uh, welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one, say good morning to the independent member of the House, Mount Pearl Southlands. That's Paul Lane. Good morning, Paul. You're on the air. Hey, Patty. How are you this morning? Not too bad. Thanks for asking. How are you doing? I'm doing great, bud. Great kickoff to your shoulder. A little bit of cream, but I tell you what, that brought back a few memories from my teenage years. Love it. Uh, absolutely. Um, Patty, I, I, I just wanted to, I guess, pick up on uh, on your preamble and so on and, and on the announcement that was made yesterday regarding... Uh, registered nurses and so on and I just want to say that first of all uh, you know I'm cautiously optimistic and a little bit encouraged that we're finally seeing some uh, you know um, what I would consider tangible movement as it relates to uh, some of the problems plaguing our healthcare system Uh, I have had some brief communication with uh, Minister Osborne um, and I have to say that uh, uh, he certainly committed to me that uh, he's definitely on the uh, the issue as it relates to uh, the Ukrainian doctors, and he's also very engaged with uh, uh, with Memorial University in trying to fix what I would consider a major failure in recruiting our own doctors. And of course, yesterday we've seen the announcement now uh, on some of the incentives that are going to be put in place to deal with um, uh, nurses and so on. So. Um, uh, you know, I just want to give some credit where credit is due. At least it seems like somebody is trying. For the longest time, uh, people were speaking out about these issues, and there wasn't even an acknowledgement from the former minister, really, that uh, we were in crisis. But uh, there seems to have been some sort of an awakening, uh, regardless of what the motivation may be. Um, I- I'm happy to see some movement. I hope that uh, we're going to see the same approach now, uh, if he hasn't already done so, and we can see some, um, perhaps some meetings with with uh, the uh, the psychologists and so on, because that's another group, uh, the allied health professionals, uh, where we're having uh, challenges as well. So I, I think definitely there needs to be some, uh, they need to meet with uh, those people and see what we can do to try to uh, help attract and retain uh, some of the critical skills that are required there. And also, um, you know, one of the things that did happen a, a while back, and that was under the former minister, was um, they did try to put some mechanisms in place to try to deal with the backlog of heart surgeries, uh, whether that be sending people out of the province or uh, sending some surgeons in from uh, one of the other provinces, I think it was Ottawa or wherever, to try to deal with that backlog. But of course, there are many, many people in this province that are awaiting diagnostic and surgical procedures for things other than heart. Uh, And there are tremendous backlogs here, and I hear from people all the time. And so I would hope that they would be working on some similar strategies when it comes to some of the other backlogs that we have um, that we that we have in our system, and you know while it's great, and I certainly acknowledge the work of Sister Elizabeth and Dr. Pat Parfrey, uh, I think those are 
more longer term fixes. Uh, I think the premise of what they're doing makes a lot of sense in terms of a healthier population, in terms of prevention, and deter- in, 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 in terms of dealing with the social determinants of health, poverty, and all that stuff. I think we would all agree on that. But those are not things that you can just wave a magic wand and all of a sudden everybody is healthy. Everybody has uh, the ability to, you know, get all the healthy food that they would need and everybody is exercising and doing all these good things. Yeah, and it's even it's even bigger than that. It's generational yeah. stuff, you know. Absolutely it is. Social yes. determinants of health, you know, whether it be about our lifestyle and diet is one thing, but yep. who you are, where you are, your level of education, the amount of money Absolutely. coming in the door, I mean, there's just so much to that and that will yep. take, you know, that's why that's referred to as a 10-year implementation plan because it's going to take uh, that kind of time to put the supports in place because it's not just in the Department of Health Community Services. That's justice, that's education, that's a variety of uh, different departments that are going to have to play an active role in it. Just one comment on the what sure. looks to be a comprehensive package, and you know, Yvette Coffey sees it as a message of hope. Of course, she's the president of the Registered Nurses sure. Union of the province. His, yep. Someone asked me during the first break as why there's an end a, at October 31st. Well, I don't know, but I'm going to assume that like everything else, unless you have a time frame where not only, one, it would allow people people to see that the package is not there forever, maybe to take advantage of it, which I think is probably a smart move. And secondly, mm-hmm. if it doesn't work, you got to try something else. And you can't wait yeah. a year or two to deal with an immediate problem if you don't understand whether or not it's working in the next three months. I think it just kind of makes sense that, you know, let's measure it. And if people didn't take advantage of it, we go back to the well and figure it out. Absolutely. And if it works and it seems to be, uh, and it seems to be uh, having the desired effect, then we could always extend it uh, for a longer period of time. Sure. So uh, I don't have a problem with that. I think that makes uh, a lot of good sense. And as I said, it's, uh, we're seeing some steps in the right direction. So I, I just want to acknowledge that and, and, uh, and that uh, Minister Osborne certainly seems to be taking these issues seriously. And I, I, I thank him for that. And We'll see where all this goes, but as I said, there's certainly a lot of work to be done, and there's a lot of immediate work to be done. So, uh, again, I just encourage him now to take that similar approach with the allied health professionals, the the child psychologists and so on, where there's also a crisis to look at where the gaps are in terms of some of our mental health services and certainly to look at the backlogs that we're experiencing in the health authorities when it comes to diagnostic and surgery procedures for things other than heart disease. Heart absolutely is a priority. Glad they're doing what they're doing, but people have other problems besides heart issues that have to be dealt with, and they can't be waiting for two years or three years to see a specialist or get a to get a diagnosis or to get a, a much-needed surgery. So uh, a lot of work to be done, um, but uh, I certainly encourage the minister to continue on the track that he's doing and to see some actual tangible process which we're finally seeing after months and months of bringing this to government's attention so thank you minister osborne i wish him all the best with that and i certainly support any moves he makes to uh you know get us going in the right direction appreciate the time thanks paul Thank you, Patty. All the very best. Take care. Bye-bye. You know, again, there's going to be people that criticize all of these moves, and so be it. That's just nature of the beast. If you think there's something missing, and whether or not now is the need to, for instance, a licensed practical nurse just sent me a note and said, it's time to maximize their scope of practice. Agreed. There was a story last week about the department is considering bringing nurse practitioners 
in their privately established clinics into the world of MCP? Makes sense. Anywhere where a trained, accredited healthcare professional can work to the maximum of uh, his or her training and accreditation and professionalism, let's let them do it. I know there's a lot of territorial stuff where people try to protect their little bit of ground, you know, whether that be for the billable hours and appointments that goes to MCP, whatever it is. The time has come now to ensure that whatever can be done that makes sense is done provincially. Now, federal issues regarding paperwork and different levels of accreditation in different provinces, whether it be for a doctor to come for a locum, and the paperwork and the time and the expense, now they're not doing it because they couldn't be bothered. So there's a lot of stuff to that. Add into it some of the issues with newcomers to the country and their training as doctors or otherwise. Fast track and understand it's not to betray Canadian standards, it's to try to make it easier and be done in a more timely fashion for if someone has the training that you know, based on assessment tests and what have you, can join the ranks of the healthcare workers and the professionals in this province, let's figure it out. All right, let's take a break. Appreciate Joshua Joshua's patience. He wants to talk about saving some gas. We could all do that. Then there was a caller last week, really quite frustrated with the fact that they see some people out there walking their dogs in the height of the sun in the middle of the day, and whether or not we should be worried about that. Dr. Maggie Brown Burry is in the queue to talk about some safety tips regarding your pets and the hot weather, pets and crowds and the like. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Let's get a few gas saving tips. Line two, Joshua, you're on the air. Morning, Patty. How's it going? Great today. Thanks. How about you? Good. Thanks for having me on. It's good to be here. Um, so I'll just start out saying, I mean, I'm no expert in this field, uh, like I guess probably most of us, but I do drive. And actually, I work for the transportation industry. But basically, um, I do, uh, you know, through the grapevine and also through friends and family and, you know, research and personal experience, I do have a few tips just to throw out there in case anyone is not aware. And uh, some of these tips, of course, are just common sense anyway, I guess. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure if you look hard enough, there's probably like uh, a bajillion different gas savings tips you can, you can utilize and think of. But um, I figured I'd just kind of throw out a couple of ones that I know of uh, over the airwaves, right? Fire away. Hello? Yeah, fire away. Okay, great. I thought it was cut off. Um, so when you first get into your car, especially in the summer, a lot of us have uh, air conditioning. And um, apparently, and again, you, you probably know this anyway, as, as most probably do, but apparently it's best if you, especially if it's a really hot day and you get into your car, apparently it's a good idea to actually crack the windows for probably like a minute or so to actually let like the excess heat out first because... Um, if you're gonna if you're gonna blast the AC in like a car that's probably like 35 or more degrees inside, apparently it increases the strain on the engine to cool the car. Absolutely, so air conditioning is yeah. a good one for burning gas. That's for sure. Yeah, and again, like is I'm not I'm not trying to knock air conditioning, but if and I, I use it sometimes too, especially on the highway. But um, like I said, apparently if you actually release some of the heat first in your car you know if you if you take your car out of lunch or whatever in the hot of the day you know just to crack the windows for a minute or so just to let that heat out yeah i mean it's not going to go down to like zero degrees by itself but it'll probably reduce the temperature in the car by a few degrees and then maybe if you just want to put your windows back up then the air conditioning doesn't have to work as hard to cool the car inside thus you know, I mean, it's not going to save you 30 bucks of gas per tank, but, you know, it's probably going to make a small difference at least, right? There's a lot of really fundamental things out there that have a direct relationship with the amount of gas you burn. 
Like, for instance, the air pressure in your tires. You wouldn't really yeah, think of that as having a massive influence, but apparently it does. And I would think, especially when you go from the different seasons, winter to summer and vice versa, it does have a direct impact on the air pressure in your tires, and it does relate to how much gas you use. Yeah, it all adds up, right? Yep. Uh, another thing, I, uh, one of my buddies used to drive the Ford Ranger. Um, this would have been a few years ago, but I guess it's still applicable now with trucks. Uh, I don't have a truck personally but i hear that if you have a truck and like your if it's like a, an open pan in the back apparently you're actually and again according to my old buddy uh dion he was saying that when he would put that flat tarp over the back of his truck not like the big box that you have like uh, i don't even know what they're called but what dion was saying is that when he would put the tarp just like that black flat tarp over the back of his pan on his ranger especially going over the highway he would say you know josh by he notices a, a significant fuel savings and i guess you know the reason for that is like there's less air resistance getting into the back of the pan and like again especially on the highway you know if you have it covered with that tarp now we're going you know the tarp is probably going to be a bit expensive anyway i don't know but if you if you have it in your shed or something already apparently it does save you gas to have that on the on the back of the truck well it stands to reason it's uh you know it's all about drag right that tailgate catches a lot of wind uh the the permanent one or maybe the canvas one or the hard plastic one they're called tonneau covers for the most part and they absolutely will play an active role but i think the number one thing for burning gas and this is something which i don't think many people factor in given the way we see them drive is hard acceleration hard braking hard acceleration hard braking and the speed you travel if you travel at a consistent highway speed let's say you set your cruise at i don't know 105 between that and pumping the pedal to pass at 120 and coming back to some reasonable uh, legal speed, that's the stuff that drains the gas more than anything else we can even point to here. Drag, AC, tire pressure. It's when you push the accelerator hard, you are banging through the gas like it's nobody's business. Yeah, it, it, it's kind of funny in hindsight, but I was scared to death at the time. I, you, you reminded me when I was a kid, we had a uh, family friend who would babysit us. <laughs> and I thought every second time we got in with them, we were going to die because, uh, you know, he would. It, it seemed like at the time now, maybe my, my memory is kind of embellishing things a bit, but I, I, I recall him basically like flying through the city and slamming on the brakes at every intersection when he got a red light and then zooming on again like, a bad at a you know what <laughs> when the when the green light would happen so like i said it's kind of funny to think about now but at the time i was like holy sugar we're gonna die right <laughs> yeah there's <laughs> like, one thing associated with fear but it absolutely has an implication on fuel mileage i mean there's a reason why when you look at the ratings it's different for say city street operation versus highway speeds but again it'll come down to just how aggressive you are and what they call the loud pedal Oh, yeah. And also, not to take up too much time, but um, again, this might be common sense to most people, but like even, even this morning, for instance, I, I went to Tim's and I was thinking to myself, you know what, I'll go through the drive-thru if it's only a couple of cars, but I'll go in if it's snarled up in the drive-thru. And sure enough, there was like 20 cars in the drive-thru. And when I went in, it was literally like one person at the cash in terms of like customers, right? And I thought, oh my God, I just not only saved myself some time, but probably some gas and you know, uh, I mean, hey, if you go in, you might even bump into somebody you know, right? So, um, like I said, I hope this isn't coming across as a lecture to anybody. And we, most of us drive, and I drive for a living, actually. But like I said, strength in numbers, it all adds up. This isn't going to cure global warming, of course. But, you know, like I said, it, it all adds up. And we all have a, you know, the more we can do, even individually, it, it 
it can make a small difference, and well, even I mean, on the pocketbook, right? If you had a so-called free tank of gas over the course of four to six months because of some friendly tips that Joshua or anybody else has offered, no one's going to look that gift horse in the mouth. Uh, on top of that, I think it's becoming more and more popular with new models, is when you press the brake and you come to an extended stop that the vehicle turns off. I find it to be odd. I don't think I really like it, but I understand the significance between ga- gas mileage and emissions and the like. There was one of my buddies that uh, has one. Just yesterday, it was yesterday, day before, I was out at the end of the driveway. They stopped and the vehicle turned off. Not because he turned yeah, it off, because it turned itself off. Yeah. On newer models. It's kind of disorienting at first if you're not used to it. Yeah. And uh, probably just one more quick thing for 30 seconds. Sure. Um, it, it's a little bit, again, I don't want to come across as, as preachy or luxury too much here, but, uh, you know, even even walking through parking lots, now I get it. If it's like an incredibly hot day, you're probably going to leave your car idling and have the AC on. But, you know, I'm, I'm after walking through parking lots like most of us, and even if it's like a relatively cool day that you don't technically need your car on, you know, I, I notice these especially kind of even a little bit more frustrating, like these big rigs like the SF250s just idling away for 15 or 20 minutes if I'm parked next to them and I have my car turned off usually. And then the, I'm just thinking, like, you want to say something to the guy next to you, like, do you really need to be idling right now? You Have you not heard that the earth is warming up type thing? But you don't want to have that confrontation. But at the same time, I would just encourage people to even just to reevaluate if they – I mean, hey, maybe they're charging their phone. Maybe their battery's weak. I don't know. But for those who might not necessarily need to have their car idling or their big truck for 20 or 25 minutes, maybe just to reconsider, hey, I'll save money, I'll save gas, and I'll save the environment a bit more if I just simply click that key two two notches to the left, you know? There was uh, – this was month, – I'll say a month ago. Uh, out in front of a grocery store, the one I go to in my neighborhood, one of two, uh, parked in the fire lane, classic, one-ton dually diesel idling close enough to the door where you could smell the diesel fumes all the way through the produce section. <laughs> I mean, th- that one there is just a little bit oblivious to what's going on. But anywho, uh, good to have you on the show, Joshua. I appreciate your time. I appreciate you, and uh, to keep up the good work, Patty. Have Thanks. a great day. All the best. Same to you. Bye-bye. Uh, just a quick note. I just saw this. Uh, one of the voices of summer. Legendary Dodgers broadcaster, icon, Vin Scully, dead at the age of 94. Vin Scully was in the broadcast booth for the Los Angeles Dodgers for 67 years. 67 years. One of the very best. I mean, not only the what they refer to as the dulcet tones, but allowed the fans to be part of the commentary, part of the play-by-play. One of the greatest examples of class and professional play-by-play as a baseball announcer World Series, Kirk Gibson coming off the bench to hit that iconic home run and hobble around the bases. Vin Scully didn't say a single word for over a minute. He let the crowd call the play. Vin Scully, dead at 94. Wow, what a beauty he was. Uh, let's take a break. I think when we come back, Dr. Maggie brown is going to join us to talk about pets in the heat and the pets in the crowds, and then we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your requests to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Dr. Maggie brown Brewery. You are on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you today? Doing very well. Thanks for asking. How about yourself? Oh, not too bad. I have the day off, so... The day off. Didn't even have to play roulette to get it. Good for you. 
Okay, so there was a caller last week, I believe his name was Vincent, and he was really quite irritated with the fact that he was seeing so many people out walking their dogs. Now, people will do as they see fit, but maybe there's not a whole lot of thought given to whether or not I should be out in the heat of the day, in the middle of the day, on some of these extraordinarily hot days we've had in the region. What do you want people to think about when it's time to take the dog for a walk? We've got to get the animals out for a walk and, you know, for a variety of reasons, but what do you want them to think about on hot days? Well, I think that people need to remember as as dog owners that um, dogs can't speak for themselves and we have to sort of take a moment and think about things from their perspective um, and make decisions on their behalf because if your dog really likes to go for a walk, they're not reading the weather report. They, If you're in an air-conditioned house, they have no concept that it's going to be different outside. You pick up the leash, they're going to be excited. You're going to think they're excited. You're going to get outside and depending on your dog's personality and stuff, you, you know, you might not realize that they're actually uncomfortable outside. And um, depending on what your dog's used to and your dog's breed, different levels of temperature is going to be too warm. If you have a flat-faced dog, like a bulldog or a pug, a French bulldog, dogs do not have sweat glands. They lose heat or like expel heat to keep their body cool by panting. Um, And these flat-faced dogs have a lot less airway and nasal passages to work with to do that heat loss. So they're going to get overheated more quickly than your beagle or your labrador retriever so if you have a flat-faced dog you need to be extra aware of the heat and all of that because they're much more susceptible to heat stress Um, and the other thing that people need to keep in mind no matter the the shape or size or breed of your dog uh, if you're walking them on asphalt or concrete they're walking on that in their bare feet. Uh, and on a really sunny day, the asphalt, the concrete could get quite warm and, and they will burn the pads of their feet. Um, and again, they might not outwardly express right away that it's uncomfortable for them. They might walk at a quicker pace, but um, you might get home and then find later that they're really tender on their feet because they've, they've gotten burns on their feet. Like if you've ever gone down to like a sandy beach and you take off your sandals and put your feet on the dry, hot sand, uh, it's quite uncomfortable. Uh, now imagine you have no choice but to stay standing there because you don't know how to express yourself to say, I don't like this. Of course, and we can manage ourselves and communicate with ourselves and our friends or our family, whatever the case may be. I'd never heard anything in reference to the flat-faced dog and the additional risk associated with the flat-faced dogs, but that's interesting. So, you know, one of my buddies, he was kind of just making a comment about when they set up the little pool out back, they don't have any children still at home, they set up the little pool for the dog. The dog won't get in it and lie down, simply walks in, cools off uh, his feet, and then just hops over his paws and then just hops out. So people think that well if i just give them a bit of reprieve get them some shade get them some water everything's going to be okay but might not be as simple as that yeah i mean it really depends on the dog um, and their own preferences um you know i have a friend who has one of those sort of sled dog mixes from labrador very thick fluffy coat um she does everything she can to make sure that there are cooling options in the summer for this dog. Uh, and this dog sometimes just flat out ignores those options. Um, and, and we can't ask the dog, why do you not want to be in front of the fan or why do you not want to get in your kiddie pool? Um, and there could be no logical reason. The dog could just decide he doesn't like it. And they don't make the connection that I'm too hot. If I go over there, I won't get too hot. Um, but definitely providing the option of reprieve is 
great, like especially if you're hanging out in the backyard, like you're having a barbecue, you have some friends over, is there somewhere shady your dog can go? Um, is there like a little wailing pool that they can cool themselves often if they want to? Uh, it's the same with any livestock that you have outside you need to provide them the option for shelter um, whether they take it or not is their own choice but if you're not providing them the option then you're putting them uh, at risk fair enough so people can give that some additional consideration let's talk about pets and crowds you know and not about being on a leash on the trails or what have you but knowing your pet and how they react in crowds and some things to consider so today there would inevitably have been some dogs <laughs> down around kitty vitty and other places where we congregate in large numbers how do you think about bringing your dog out and knowing your dog and how they react in crowds and things to look out for the thing that i always want pet owners to think about um and, and i don't mean this with any disrespect because i know people aren't doing it maliciously but you need to put your pet first and not yourself first so you need to think about who am i doing this for am i doing this because i want my dog with me am i doing this because i want people to meet my dog um or am I doing this because my dog loves to be out and about and meeting people? Um, am I doing this because my dog can't be left home alone, but I don't want to miss out on the adventure? And, and if that's the case, if you're putting your dog first, you're going to plan to cut your trip down to the lake or, or what have you short as soon as your dog is showing that they're uncomfortable or as soon as, you know, if they usually go out for an hour, you've been out for an hour, okay, bring them back home. Like, don't extend their usual outdoor time uh, just because you want to stay outdoors when they can't tell you that, you know, they've had enough. Um, it's definitely a big concern in previous years on Regatta Day when it's also been really hot um, because now you're dealing with heat stress concerns as well as crowd stress re re concerns um, and you have to think about your dog's daily life like dogs in Newfoundland and Labrador might be a little bit more susceptible to the risk of heat stress than a dog who lives in Arizona right because their baseline what they're used to is different if your dog is never ever really around a lot of people being around a crowd is going to be very stressful so if that's not something that you do with your dog regularly, you've got to be prepared to basically abort mission if your dog is showing any signs of being uncomfortable. Um, and, and signs of being uncomfortable is being like, you know, tail tucked, not up and happy and wagging. So tail tucked, um, head held low, ears held back, not being like their confident usual self. And if your dog is not normally a confident dog, then it's not a dog that you should be bringing into a crowd. What about the people who don't own the dogs? You see this quite often you just want to be pleasant and friendly and so people will reach down to give the dog a little rub on the head or what have you should people do that or if they're going to approach a dog is it a matter of asking the owner or presenting the back of your hand what do you suggest uh, it is always, always good practice to ask the owner if it's okay to approach their dog. And, you know, some some owners might not care at all. Uh, responsible owners will probably hold their dog back uh, from the crowd if they're not okay with being approached. Um, but the, the big thing is it's always just a good habit to ask first, um, to approach slow, let the dog sniff you. Do not go straight for a dog and hand to pet the top of the head because if you think about that from the dog's perspective, here's this giant coming at you head first with a hand coming towards your head, um, and that could make you flinch in the best of time. Like when I'm in an exam room with a large dog, I'm crouching down on the ground, I'm getting on their level so that I seem less threatening, um, and, and that's basically what you want to do is you want to try to just approach slow be less threatening some dogs are super confident and love people and they're going to like jump up on you um 
also not the kind of dog you want to bring into a crowd because what if someone's afraid of dogs? But um, you got to kind of let the dog make the first move. If a dog's not coming to you, then they don't want to be, they don't want to greet you, then you just have to, you have to let that go. Again, we have to put the dog first. As much as we might want to squish them and cuddle them and hug them, some dogs are just not okay with that. Um, and we just have to love them with our eyeballs and soak in their cuteness without touching them. Always good to have you on the show, Maggie. Appreciate your time. Not a problem. Take good care. You too. Okay, bye. bye-bye. It's Dr. Maggie Brown-Burry. Yeah, I mean, it can be a worry for many. I remember there was a lady years ago used to call about the folks taking their dogs for walk-off. Signal Hill, I think it was, on the hot days and no water handy and what have you. One thing that we do know for sure is the vast majority of pet owners, dog owners, they love their dog. It's a part of their family. And so, again, you would think that most would never try to put their dog in any bit of bother or harm but maybe sometimes you know you think that you can just get the, some water and they'll be okay on the concrete the gray concrete versus the black asphalt and so anyway you take the tips from the veterinarian that is dr maggie brownbury let's take a break when we come back jerry's in the queue troubling story from yesterday the third diving death off of bell island this year jerry wants to talk about it don't go away welcome back let's go first we'll go to line number one tony you're on the air yeah, just uh, got through that accident there in Avondale. Looks like one car overturned in the eastbound lane into the uh, median. So everyone's on site, cops, ambulance, fire services. Cops are in the rain trying to do some traffic control. Let's get the ambulance in. Just let them do their job, folks. Be patient, please. A hundred percent, because, you know, when the looky-loo start, then all of a sudden you took your eye off the road, and consequently you might be the next uh, accident or incident or collision that they're attending to. So is traffic stopped in both directions? What's happening with the flow of traffic? Uh, well, because you had mentioned it, I knew it was coming up. So, you know, once you see people start, you know, get clogged up, move to the right. But no, people keep going past me and past me. And cops out there, you know, directing. And then we had to actually wait and move so that they could get an ambulance in. So, yeah, traffic is flowing both ways, but they're down to one lane. And the boy, they're trying to do traffic control. So got to watch it out there. I really appreciate the update, Tony. Thanks for this. All right. Cheers, man. Take good care. Bye-bye. Bye. So avoid the area where there's been a car overturned out there on the, in and around Avondale. Let's go to line number three. Jerry, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Uh, just like to make a, a comment, Patty, about these three people that died over on Bell Island driving offshore. Okay. Uh, very uh, unusual. A high number for three people to, to drown within a few months diving. It seems like it. And, uh, you know, I think it would be a good idea if somebody from the diving community, company, diving tour companies, instructors, somebody would come in and let the public know the, the dangers of, of diving. And I don't know if this, these people were diving on a tour or diving on their own, which is rule number one, of course, in diving is never dive by yourself. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to get that out there. Maybe somebody can come out and give us a heads up and let's, let us know what's on the go. 
I don't know if there is a similar circumstance surrounding all of these deaths, but three people this summer just off of Belle Island. I was thinking about it yesterday, and I'll just bounce this off you, Jerry. Yeah, so it's obviously a very popular place to dive, whether it be to look at some of the shipwrecks in the area and whatever that they're looking at. It's been featured in diving magazines. It's become a hot spot for diving. Do you think there's any relationship with the fact that so many people would dive in that area that consequently, if we're going to hear about diving-related deaths, there's a likelihood that they'll take place off of Belle Island just based on sheer numbers. What do you think? I, uh, when I'm looking at this situation, for three people to drown in such a short period of time, you know, even now as we speak, there are millions of people in the water all over the world diving right now. And the number of fatalities compared to the number of people in the water is fairly negligible. You just barely might be zero, 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 one percent of the people that are in the water who are going to drown. But, uh, I, I don't understand, uh, really, um, uh, I'm losing my train of thought there, I? Oh, yes, when you're diving, like, I'm not a diver, but I, I got a lot of experience in the ocean, swimming. And when you're diving, um, God, can to help me out here, buddy? Okay, when you dive, look, there's a variety of things to re remember and recognize. And unless you've ever yeah. been trained to scuba dive, some of these things might not come to mind. For yeah. instance, most of these divers are not deep sea diving, right? You know, no, so right, there's no. a difference between uh, oxygen mix when you go deeper yes. and the impact on your lungs and how quickly you can or should not ascend back to the surface. There's all kinds yeah. of things to keep in mind. I don't know if this was oxygen mix issues, whether they had experience. Like, I don't know what the exact circumstances were surrounding these three deaths, but it is a I don't know if we've seen this kind of uh, fatality number, whether it be off Belle Island or in scuba diving around the province. I really don't know. It no. seems to jump off the page to right. me anyway. Yeah, but I, like I was going to say, I'm not an expert on diving by any means. I just wanted to, to get it out. Maybe somebody else with knowledge can phone in. I'm happy but, to try to get them on, absolutely. But there's, another, there's a couple of other things I want to talk about when it comes to safety on the water and on hiking. Now, I'm going to bring up medical first. Uh, Last year, now I spent a lot of time in the ocean swimming. Last year I was down in Middle Cove, and I was out diving off a rock. That's to your right-hand side. It's about 100 feet offshore. So when I was out on this rock, I was back on to the cliff, and I heard this plop, 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 and there were huge rocks falling into the ocean from the cliff. And when I'm looking at this situation down in Middle Cove, you got to look at the winter and the ice that's hanging off of this cliff. So you've got tons and tons of ice, winter after winter after winter, forming on that cliff, pulling on that rock face, pulling and pulling and pulling. And it's only a matter of time before that cliff falls into the ocean. And that's what's going to happen down there. I hope not. But people got to understand that when you go down the middle cove and you turn right to walk down that shoreline, and you're right underneath those cliffs, you have got to be very you know, vigilant of what's around you. And you, know, you can't go down there and sit down in that area and have a cup of tea or a hot dog. It's just not safe. Fair enough. You always got to be aware of your surroundings and, you know, what kind of 
jeopardy you put yourself in when you're close to cliff edges. Right. Yeah, I don't know, Jerry. You're probably right on the money, but I think we should get someone on who yeah. knows more about diving and maybe more about the circumstances of these three deaths uh, sure. because there's lots of diving enthusiasts. There's a lot of diving tourism companies that operate in that area as well. So right. maybe I know some of these people that are involved. Maybe we can organize some time with them so they can help fill in some of the blanks. Yeah. Okay, buddy. One more thing before we go. Sure. We're uh, When it comes to uh, swimming in rivers or ponds, no matter where you're to, even if you're like, used to going to a, a community swimming hole, and you might may be doing it for years and years, never go down the first time for the, for the year and just assume that you can dive into a pool that you have been diving into for 20 years. Because in the wintertime, when you have ice and snow and rain, and all it takes is one good rainstorm, you can end up with a, a fridge or a stove in that pool with the power of, of the water. Somebody could have an old fridge or a stove out in the, in, in the back of the river on the shoreline. Next thing that's washed out in the river, where do it end up to? Down in the big river in one of the pools. Yeah. You don't know it's there. Yeah, fair enough. Fair and, point. Uh, another thing to hiking. Now, I spent a lot of time on the water, in the water, and then hiking and whatever, right? And people got to understand that when you're hiking, you got to be very careful. There's a time when you're on the trail to enjoy the scenery, so you stop hiking. You take a minute, you look around, you enjoy it. You cannot uh, look at the scenery and hike at the same time. That doesn't, doesn't work because you're going to stub your toe, you're going to fall, you're going to trip, or whatever. Another thing, too, when you're hiking, always carry a hiking stick and always look at the signage. And if the distance from A to B is 10 kilometers, a rule of thumb when you're hiking, 20 minutes for a kilometer, half an hour for a mile. And the benefit of carrying a hiking stick is that if you're going on an extended hike for two or three or four hours or whatever it is, the hiking stick transfers energy from your lower body to your upper body. So you get thousands and thousands of pounds of energy that ordinarily would go to your hips and legs. Now that's transferred all over your body, your shoulders, your back, your upper arms, and it saves you a lot of uh, energy and you can enjoy your hike. Yeah, and don't be afraid to change hands. You know, we generally yeah. go with our dominant sure. hand. Yeah. Uh, good tip there, Jerry. Really yeah. appreciate the time this morning. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Okay. Oh, Patty, before you go. Yeah. When it comes to cold water, I swam in the Bell Island without a wetsuit. Ooh. <laughs> now, you want to try it? <laughs> You're a hard case. <laughs> okay, everybody. Thanks, Jerry. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, maybe we'll reach out to some of the local divers uh, to see if they want to chime in on this issue. I'm sure they don't understand, or pardon me, they don't, might not know the particulars. But I had this conversation with a buddy of mine yesterday afternoon, as a matter of fact, and it wasn't just about these three deaths off of Bell Island. The conversation went on to free diving, which is amazing stuff. So the first woman to pass 100 meters in free dive was a lady named Natalia Molchanova. Her son, Alexi, went on to be a renowned free diver as well. The other person that became part of the conversation was an Australian, or pardon me, an Austrian free diver. His name is Herbert Nitsch. So he's held a bunch of the world records and referred to as the deepest man on earth. In one single breath, because you have to think about it, they expand their lungs as much as possible to take in as much air as they can for their uh, pending free dive. When you go really deep, your lungs contract. And they're almost flattened inside your chest. Uh, Herbert Nitsch dove to a depth of 831 feet 
on a single breath. I believe the story goes on to say that upon his ascension, which, he, which happened too quick, he suffered brain injury because he came up too fast. But <clears throat> imagine a one breath and a free dive. So there's a bunch of categories. You can go down with a single fin, double fin, no fins, and there's one more. I can't remember what it is. But regardless of how someone gets to the depth of 831 feet, a human being on one breath is truly remarkable so that free dive stuff and there they have seen of course given the risks associated with it a number of deaths over the years but man oh man uh let's go ahead and take a break so we talked to dr maggie brown brewery about pets and crowds and hot days and the like now we're going to talk a bit of access because we've got the summer festival season upon us and the pedestrian mall and the regatta likely tomorrow what it means for folks with disabilities because disabilities doesn't just mean mobility related matters nancy reed is the executive director the coalitions of persons with disabilities newfoundland and labrador she's next and then you don't go away join brian medor weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels newsmakers weather and more join us on your vocm at noon welcome back let's go line number two and as advertised join us on the line is the executive director at cod that's the coalitions of persons with disabilities that's nancy reed hi nancy you're on the air good morning patty welcome um, back to the show <laughs> thanks so much Today, I'd really like to take a few minutes to talk about um, accessibility, of course. We, we do that a lot. Um, but today, I'd really like to, I guess, you know, thinking of Regatta Day, which hopefully is tomorrow, and, and also thinking about the downtown pedestrian mall. Um, we're hearing from quite a number of individuals who are having difficulty uh, and identifying as a person with a disability, but having difficulty still accessing these spaces. And if I could, I'd like to speak to a couple of the areas that are most difficult for folks. Sure. Um, and, and specifically, I, and, and I appreciate, Patty, that you said that not all disabilities are visible. Very true. And not all disabilities are physical mobility disabilities. Um, I will... Um, I guess applaud the city of St. John's in their attempt uh, this year to work with uh, at least one of our uh, nonprofit organizations to ensure that people with a particular sensory disability would have better access to the pedestrian mall. Um, in the media a few weeks ago, it was covered pretty pretty fully that um, uh, the Blind Square app was made available, and I know that uh, that individuals from uh, Canadian National Institute for the Blind, for instance, were were certainly vocal in that uh, space, talking about the opportunities that that app uh, enabled for people with low vision or blindness to really navigate the pedestrian mall uh, better. In that same uh, space, however, there are some difficulties pointed to that that particular app is really only available, as I understand it, uh, with Apple devices and not available with Androids. So for those of us who might be users of a different smartphone besides an Apple phone, the app would not be something that would be uh, easily used on the device that, that a person might have. So it's one of those areas that we're really close to making a difference not quite there you know um so i applaud the city for for the attempt and certainly hope that they'll continue to work with um you know partners to enable that to be more available to folks well absolutely you have to recognize that people use different platforms and software or hardware whatever the right word is i'm not very tech savvy Neither. It's okay. We'll talk, we'll talk real people language. Um, but one of the areas that we often hear about, and I'm hearing about it again this year, is really around accessible parking and the opportunities for folks, especially those who use uh, accessible parking permits, the Blue Zone parking permits, to actually park and um, access the downtown pedestrian mall. 
Um, I'm looking at a map right now of the uh, pedestrian mall, and there are areas highlighted for accessible parking. And uh, I don't live in the city, but a couple of weeks ago, myself and my family uh, decided we'd, we'd check out the pedestrian mall. So one Sunday afternoon, drove there, and uh, I use a wheelchair, a manual wheelchair. And so when we got to the outer edge of the pedestrian mall, I took the blue zone um, sticker that I had and kind of dim- showed it to uh, one of the gentlemen, uh, the security personnel at the edge of the mall, just inquiring as to where I could park. And the individual, the security personnel, directed me to some parking, uh, and I was in the Bishop's Cove, Adelaide Street area, um, and directed me to some parking on that hill. Now, it certainly was not ideal uh, for a wheelchair user. Uh, if I had been driving the vehicle on my own, I certainly would not have been able to use that space to get my wheelchair out of the vehicle and stop it from rolling down the hill while I transferred and that type of thing. But all of that, you know, um, excluded, I guess, there was a parking space available. So we parked there. However, when we parked there, I noticed that the other vehicles parked closer to the mall than I was. Uh, neither of them had accessible parking permits. So uh, my, my husband and myself, you know, spoke to the security personnel and commented that, you know, these vehicles were parked in accessible parking spaces. However, they weren't identified as parking, you know, as having permits. And I was told by the, um, the security personnel in uniform that they were not permitted to direct people away from parking spaces where they weren't able to park. They weren't, any, they weren't allowed to tell somebody they were parked inappropriately. They further said, and when I said, well, why don't you call the RNC because this is a ticketable offense and, you know, they're not parked appropriately. He said, we're not permitted to do that. So what I'm faced with is a, an extra challenge because we have accessible parking spaces within the, you know, in the area of the pedestrian mall. And we have a security team hired to direct traffic to ensure safety. And they don't have the capacity to tell a person they're parking appropriately and they're blocking um, appropriate parking for somebody who needs it. So while parking is an issue for everybody, um, most of us, whether we are a person with a disability or not, have challenges finding parking. This really points to another block that's put in the way of people with disabilities. There were two vehicles, there were three parking spaces, and two of those spaces were being used by persons without a a parking permit that day. There was a person called yesterday, a lady I believe, talking about one specific parking space. We won't, I'm not going to put you on the spot say, do you know this one spot at Baird's Cove? But the sign was way up and the person apparently who got a ticket didn't even see the sign. Plus there was no blue paint acknowledging that it was a blue zone parking space. Is the city and or private business or the province, is it incumbent on them to paint the spot blue? Because when that's the giveaway for the most of us. We'll see that and notice it and recognize it won't park there. Well, we shouldn't park there. But maybe if it's just a sign that's maybe a little bit further afield from the space or is way up on a pole or something, people might not just see it as opposed to the blue paint. So do the spaces have to be painted blue? Absolutely. Uh, no. Uh, so that, that's, a, that's a tangly question. Um, the regulations are set out in the Buildings Accessibility Act, and the regulations are very clear. The, the, uh, the, the floor, I guess, of the, of the space, so the asphalt, 
is not to be painted entirely in blue. It is to be painted with um, a, a the symbol of access in the center. So the symbol that all of us see with that wheelchair in that circle, that must be painted in the center of that of that square. In addition to that, there has to be a sign that is, and I don't have all of the dimensions in front of me. I'm struggling to find them on my computer. Um, but there is a sign that is uh, it's necessary that it's um, standing directly in front of the um, in front of that accessible parking space and it has to be and I wish I had the numbers in front of me it has to be of a certain height it's not one that can be randomly placed it has to follow the regulations outlined by the Buildings Accessibility Act and again the city of St. John's is this is a paid parking space if it's a metered space or if it's a space that the city has put there then they are bound to the le legislation that that there are the regulations that 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 enable that legislation. So yes, it must be identified clearly. And uh, the old language or the old regulations before, I think it was 2018, uh, uh, said that the, the space had to be painted blue. That has changed to inc to incorporate the symbol of access. But all the dimensions of that are outlined in the act. Last, okay, last question for me, and then you can say whatever you like. You know, I, I did in reading whenever this was about, I know it was a few years ago, they changed some of the fines, and now you can get a whopping big fine. This woman yesterday that we heard about uh, paid a $700 fine, so be it. But there's also, and I know this might not be a group that you uh, represent, but a temporary blue zone parking pass. So say, for instance, someone had a couple of knees replaced, or whatever the case mm -hmm. may be. What's the process? Is it easy to get one? Because a friend of mine who's just had a hip replacement, he made just off-the-cuff remark that he wished he had a parking permit, a blue zone parking permit. What should people know about that? Because I didn't even know it was a thing until I read it in a news story some, some time ago. And I'm not sure what, where the, I guess, how difficult or easy it is to access that. Um, this is information that's held by ServiceNL. Uh, they are responsible for, um, you know, releasing parking permits. Uh, I know that as an individual who might acquire a temporary disability, as, as you said, these parking permits are available. The process involves uh, having a doctor, you know, fill the application with you, and then you submit it to ServiceNL. It doesn't take a long time to process. Basically, it is uh, dependent on what the doctor says on that particular application. And uh, and so a parking permit, to my understanding, can be issued as on a temporary basis for somebody in a position like that who is driving, who has the capacity to drive, or is somebody who is going to be driven around and uh, needs access to spaces uh, with a, a, a temporary disability, it is certainly something that's available. Anything else you'd like to offer this morning, Nancy? Uh, I, I guess I'd just like to say that, you know, what I want the general public to really think about is that accessible parking spaces are equity for people who have a parking permit. Um, we can't always see what the person's disability is. While I have a disability that's very visible, many people have parking permits, legitimately theirs, uh, with a disability that you may not easily see. I might be a person with a heart condition and I can't walk a certain distance or I can't walk a long distance. And so the parking permit is one that gives me equity and makes it available or makes, it able, makes me able to actually get into the building. Um, so what, I, what I'd like to remind people is that just because you don't see the disability doesn't mean it's not real. And if a person has acquired that parking permit, uh, they've acquired it legitimately. You know what? We all recognize that people are going to abuse systems. Of course they are. Human beings do that sometimes. Most um, holders of permits, I'm convinced, are using them appropriately. 
but we as the general population can't decide whether or not somebody is holding a permit appropriately or not. And, uh, and it's none of our business. If you see the card, if you see the sticker in the window, just assume that it's appropriate. And again, we, we always say never just park in one of those spaces for a minute because that can mean uh, the, the difference with somebody with who needs that space actually being able to, to access that space in the first place. Really appreciate your time as usual, Nancy. Thank you very much. Thank you, Patty. Take Have a good care. day. You too. Bye-bye. As Nancy Reed, she's the Executive Director at the Coalition of Persons with Disabilities, NL. Let's go ahead and uh, take a break. When we come back, Alex is in the queue. He's talking about the possibility for a happy farm off the road in Conception Bay South. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number one. Alex, you're on the air. Hi, how you doing? Grand, you? Oh, well, not too bad, I guess, but other than trying to deal with the council's a bit difficult. What are you working on? What are you working on? I'm trying to get a hobby farm, and, well, the funny thing about it is they're promoting people to try to get hobby farms, and I've been trying now for over a year to get one now. I originally did get approved for one, but uh, we're always trying to get a... Like, I only had, like, one pig at the time, and I was trying to have two. So, like, I went through everything. I've exhausted my avenues as much as I could. I've, I've been dealing with an agricultural rep for the Avalon area, the livestock specialist. I've had waste management plans set up. But uh, the one problem I have is I had one bad neighbor that was constantly, constantly complaining. So, like, right out of that. Now, when they issued me the permit... I I was advised by the agricultural rep not to sign it because we're all wanting one more one more pig because what I'm trying to do is just provide food for my family because you know yourself the price of the food in the stores and that is is way out of whack and you can't you just can't do it right so I know like now I'm dealing with a, a local farmer up here that's a well-known farmer and. I know when I was talking to Dave there, he said not to mention no names now, but this guy said, if I had to mention his name, there's no problem. I can go ahead because between him and his wife, they're like, they're going to back for me like you wouldn't believe and trying to help me out as much as they can, right? Okay, well, if there's someone you have their permission to mention who they are and what they're doing for you, that's fine by me. I mean, what the, the, just so people know, the issue around naming names is because more often than not, there's more to the story. There's other sides to the story. Some of these matters end up in legal matters and legal ramifications. So as much as we try to keep some specific names off the air, it's as much as to protect you as anything else. Because yeah. it happens uh, every now and then where someone says something about someone that turns out to be defamatory or inaccurate, uh, it gets a lot of people in trouble, which can include me. I'm not too worried about my Jeopardy because I've got some protections associated with it, but name and name so we don't have all sides of the story is just dangerous business, and all media outlets operate the same way because unless you can confirm anything from different sources and or the person being referred to, we're all treading fairly mucky waters that is just not worth it sometimes. So that's the, that's the rationale behind not naming names. But if you had this person's permission, go right ahead. Yeah, well, his name is Nelson Fagan. Okay. And his wife's name is Kayla. And they're well known in the area, and they're they're very organized. And they had they had me set up to be very very organized as well. As long as and when it comes to the agricultural rep, he I won't mention his name because he never gave me permission. But he's he's been going to bat for me too, like you wouldn't believe, like writing letters to the council. And it, it, it came down to the point where. It was at a point where they were going to come and take my animals off the land. And 
then they came up, they come up to take pictures and stuff like that. And they said, okay, if you reduce your numbers, maybe then we'll probably, we'll probably be able to do something. Yeah, the, that was a council member I was talking to. And then we'll, she said, request to set a meeting up. So I phoned in, I requested to set up a meeting. I reduced my numbers. They came up, took pictures of everything. Uh, I had to get uh, letters for my little compound that I had made for the store of manure and a letter stating that I have a proper place to dispose of my manure and I there would be no killing on my land. The animals would be brought off my land and brought to the, well, like I said, Nelson Fagan again. He's willing to do all this for me as well. So I don't know that. I had the meeting, and when I had the meeting, like, I had my jot notes. They never had their ducks in a row because they were questioning stuff like we didn't receive this email and they did have it because I know it was sent to one person and I brought it down paper copy and stuff like that and it's just I can't get no headway with it okay so when, I, when I finally had my meeting they never gave me an answer or anything and I, I felt the meeting went very well and then they just came back and they said no you've been denied uh, because you never saw the original permit so I've, I, I've, I'm still waiting. Like this is about two weeks now. I'm waiting for a paper copy, which I requested, and they still haven't got that from me yet. There's a Facebook group called Homesteading Newfoundland. I think it is. Uh, maybe someone inside. Oh, okay, you're familiar with it. I've just had some people uh, who are members of it, and one of the organizers or managers of the account, whatever they call them, uh, yeah. they came on to talk about some of the supports they were able to offer others looking to get into homesteading or hobby farms, whether it be to share products, whether it be to feed their family, all the way from root vegetables to having goats and the like. So have you gone to that group to see if you can get some help navigating what you're finding to be a tricky piece of municipal business i've yes i've messaged in that group and everything and uh like there's a, a particular person out in the clarenville area that's going through the same thing because of, she has a few chickens and she's she's battling it as well but it's just like it's like you can voice your opinion in there and people will come back and say you should do this and do that but at the end of the day when you're trying to deal with the council and they they already have their minds made up before because, uh, well, I have no proof of it, but I, I'm pretty confident that the one that is complaining has a family member in the council. So, like, it's very easy for them to come back and say no to me. Okay. So what is the pushback specifically? Why are they saying that this is a problem? Well, when they revoked my permit at the beginning, they said that the property was on unsightly, and it was a smell of manure. And this was in the dead of winter. And the manure that they were talking about to be unsightly was sitting there for probably three months because it was being used as compost for my vegetable garden. And when it comes to the smell, like the agricultural rep, he's been on my property three times now. Okay. And he's been here and he said, I don't smell nothing. He said, I'm here 15 minutes. He said, I don't even hear an animal. Like my, my animals are in enclosures where they're not allowed outside right so there's there's no noise there's like if you were to walk on my land now patty you wouldn't you'd say geez there's no animals here right it's like i i went above and beyond uh trying to make everything right and it's just the council keeps shutting me down and shut me down it's like it's 
it's exhausting very much it's becoming more and more popular all the time you know we know municipalities are struggling with how many for instance uh, chickens or hens that you can have on the property and how many different kinds of animals and the kind of pens required and the smell issues and all these things but you know whether it be you do it as a hobby whether you do it to feed your family and control some of your expenses these are real life issues that councils have to be you know, take a case-by-case basis. And smell is a very unique thing in that just because someone says something smells doesn't mean it actually smells. It's worth going out and smelling it for yourself before you take yeah. someone's word for it. Uh, Alex, last word to you before I'm late getting to the break for the news. Go right ahead. Well, look, the other thing is I'll try to hurry it up, but, uh, like, CBS is a farm country, a farm town. It, it always has been. And, like, I can have somebody living next to me on a smaller piece of property and because of the fact that they're grandfathered in, they could have cows, horses, sheep, goats, have whatever they want. Mm-hmm. And I'm next to them, and I'm not allowed to have it. And just, and I asked them, because this land that I'm on, this house that I purchased in the CBS area, it previously, at, back years ago, it was used as a pig farm. And they slaughtered pigs and everything on this. And I asked, okay, can, can I be grandfathered in? And they're coming up and... They they don't know the answers, but then they'll come back and say, "Oh, if you bought something that was grandfathered in, well, then uh, it's not grandfathered into you. It would have been grandfathered into the people that owned it before." Like you can go up the main road up here in CBS and turn out any side road where there's multiple houses and subdivisions, and see a pony in the front yard, or see a couple cows in the backyard, and it's like it's right there. It's like on the walking trails going up through. Like the old train tracks, you can go up. There's people that are going up that that can pet cows and pet horses and goats and all that stuff. And I have a great place here to have stuff. And it's like I'm just being shut down, and I don't know where else to turn. Like dealing with the agricultural red livestock specialist and like Nels Fagan and stuff that's trying to get everything going for me. It's like I don't understand this. Listen, uh, Alex. Good luck with it. Give us an update when you have one. All right, thank you for getting the word out there. Appreciate it. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, bye. There we go. Yeah, and the home setting has become uber popular for every reason you can imagine. How are we doing on the telephone there, David, as he talks with Claudette Barnes? Okay, let's go ahead and take a break for the news. When we come back, we're speaking with you. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Aaron O'Brien. You're on the air. Hello, Patty. How are you? Not too bad this morning. Thanks. How about you? I'm very good. Thanks for having me on the show. Happy to do it. So I think we're talking about Immaculate Conception, the church out in Cape Royal. Yes, that's right. I'm a member of the Cape Royal Church Committee, and we're trying to spread the word that we are interested in buying the Immaculate Conception Church in Cape Royal. Uh, It is up for sale, as are many other Catholic churches right now. Um, And um, we want people to know... Uh, we want other potential buyers, other people, or other parties who might be interested in buying the church to please refrain from making any offer to buy the church. And we're asking people, uh, other interested parties to do this, to refrain from making an offer to buy the church because uh, we, uh, we, the Cape Royal Church Committee, want to buy the church on behalf of the people of Cape Royal. And we want it to remain uh, a communal space for the people of Cape Royal, a sacred space, a special place of gathering for our community. 
we saw the same thing in the first round in the 43 properties that were put up for sale. And, you know, this, for instance, the St. Bonds uh, community, they joined forces with these, a group representing the Basilica and the St. Bonds Forum, and they, tried, and they did buy the property to stave off the developer. For me, it looks like a fairly unattractive option to buy a church as a developer because so many people in the community would have a certain level of... I don't disdain for that approach taken by a developer. Let me ask you a couple of questions because I know, like, for instance, if I was to join a group to buy that type of property to preserve it as a church, for instance, the price tag, I think, is one eighty nine nine, which is a fair amount of money in the first place. How is the group approaching not only the price tag itself, hopefully it won't get into a bidding war because some of the deep pockets have the wherewithal to outbid you. How is the group looking at the additional expense of operations and upkeep and maintenance and improvements down the line? Because... It comes with just an upfront price, but that's only the beginning of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the uh, you know we're, we're, we're at this time we are working on raising the funds to uh, make an offer to buy the church. Um, it'll help us, of course, if there are no other offers. Um, it'll help us in that way. It'll help us to be successful in our bid if there are no other offers. Uh, but of course, we also we, we think that it would be best for the community of Cape Royal if this building were to remain uh, the kind of communal space that it is now. Uh, looking forward, though, in terms of upkeep, um, you know, it's it's it, this building has been sustained already mm-hmm. uh, by members of the uh, of the Cape Royal Church Committee who have tirelessly raised funds in recent years, in in the past two decades for sure. Um, to uh, make sure that the proper maintenance is done on this building so that it doesn't fall into ruin. Uh, just in the past couple of years, uh, a major, uh, major work was done on the furnace, for example. Uh, major work was done on the roof. All the, all the, uh, all the, um, uh, the, uh, the roofing was replaced uh, so, that, uh, so that the water couldn't get in any, anymore. Um, the walls were being damaged plaster was being damaged because of those leaks that's been repaired uh so we've been successful uh, especially a couple of members i should i should uh, say paula hawkins and elizabeth whalen have have raised you know so much money for all for all of this um and uh i think we can continue to do that going forward we can, can continue to maintain the building by raising money locally through bake sales or bingo games card games things like that um the you know how the building would be used in the future i I would i would hope that it would remain a sacred space that that masses could continue to to take place there um other other kinds of activities i suppose might be possible i don't know given that uh you know if if we were to acquire the building um it would have a new ownership and uh perhaps could be used in somewhat different ways uh, but I hope that it would also remain, uh, you know, a place where people could still do have their baptisms. They could still have their weddings and their funerals and maybe also a, a weekly uh, service. And I should mention that right now it is, is it the, the building is used these days. It's not it's not that it was used in the past and it's no longer used. This, this is a church that is used every week for mass. And it is used for baptisms, weddings, and funerals all the time. Um, it is it is it is occupied and it is used by the community. It's not an abandoned building uh, that's uh, going up for sale because nobody is caring for it or making use of it these days. 
I actually, you mentioned Miss Hawkins. I did indeed see one of the bulbs that was sold with her, I guess it, as a news story says, using her artistic dis- uh, abilities, pardon me, to uh, paint the image of the church on the bulbs. It was actually quite beautiful. Uh, I'm glad to hear the church is in good shape. Uh, what's the deadline for submissions this go around? Yeah, I don't know if there is a deadline. Okay, because uh, I didn't see one in the story. I'd like to, if there is a deadline, I'd like to know. But as far as I know, it's you know there's a it's being advertised for sale, and uh, I suppose they're um, you know they're 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 open to any offers, and they're I, I, I'm not sure exactly what criteria they're using to judge whether or not a particular offer is suitable. Uh, they've named a price that they want to get for it, but you know the asking price is not always the price that's. That, that you know that they actually get in the end. Oh sure. So yeah, I'm not sure how the process works exactly. Do you have a full-time parish preach at Immaculate Conception? Yes, uh, the the Immaculate Conception Church is part of a, a larger parish which encompasses uh, churches. I think from 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 Muse to Cape Royal along the southern shore, um, and I, I, I guess. Uh, communities from Kappa Hayden to Brickus South are serviced by that parish, I think. I think those would be the boundaries of the parish. And there is one priest for that parish, and he does masses in four different churches every week. Okay, because that's one of the concerns for many churches around the province who lost their parish priest, and then all of a sudden the weekly mass became a monthly mass, and so that's, and maybe that's led to some of the decreasing numbers in congregants or parishioners. Well, I don't know. I was just curious about the status of the priests in the neighborhood, So, or pardon me, at that particular church. Uh, anything else you'd like to say this morning, Aaron, while you're here on the show? Uh, I'd just like to uh, reiterate that uh, this building, this property in Cape Royal, the Immaculate Conception Church, is very important to the people of Cape Royal. Um, it is actively used, and we want it to remain uh, a building that can be accessed by the people of Cape Royal and used by the people of Cape Royal as a sacred space and as a special place of gathering. And that's why we're uh, we're asking that any other parties who might wish to put in an offer on this property, please refrain from doing so, so that the people of Cape Royal can continue to have access to this historic property uh, that was built by uh, by our ancestors, um, funded by our ancestors, and uh, it is currently being maintained by the people of Cape Royal, and we want it to remain that way. I really appreciate making time for the show. Keep us in the loop when you have a chance, Aaron. Okay, thanks for your time today. Take good care. Bye-bye. As the Fox Cape Royal, uh, the parishioners at Immaculate Conception, asking the developers to stay out of it, if at all possible, is an interesting uh, take uh, brought forward by this one listener this morning. He says he finds that plea concerning. He understands they want the price to be as low as possible, but him asking for no competition and bidding is also limiting the funds that will go to the victims in theory. It's not necessarily what he said, though. He would just like not to get into a bidding contest with developers who obviously would have more wherewithal, access to funds, than would have a a very small church community. I mean, they're talking about bake sales and card games and selling uh, bulbs with the image of the church painted on it. So we're talking a vastly different fundraising initiative and opportunity for access to cash versus a developer who might have a longstanding relationship with a bank, can come up with significant funds, can get into a bidding war, maybe is fairly liquid to begin with so it's not that they're trying to decrease as the money as much as possible that would eventually flow to the victims i think the worry is the bidding war it's the same thing well uh, 
similar to the story I spoke to off the top of the show about hedge fund managers, pension managers getting involved in buying single home dwellings in Canada. The proposals are already been out there. One Toronto-based developer talked about spending a billion dollars on buying said units. Another big operator, Blackstone, they say they've got a $14 billion portfolio that they're looking to expand in the country. So that's the concern, is everyday Canadians getting in bidding wars with the rich guys. Everyday congregants getting in bidding wars, potentially, with the developer. That's kind of how I took it. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, Janet's in the queue. She's got a great topic. Stay tuned. And welcome back one more time. Let's go to line number one. Janet, you're on the air. Well, good morning, Patty Daly. How are you? Not too bad. Thank you. How about you? Oh, well, listen, I was so sorry to hear that you contracted COVID. I did. I got it. Well, you know, good on you for working through it from home. Well, I mean, that's the thing. And the only reason I even brought it up is the fact that, you know, we talked about it. I tried to limit the amount of talk, the, the unnecessary talk about it, but... You know, the ultimate point to me mentioning the fact is that I had a better understanding of how it is a different set of circumstances for different individuals. You know, we've Absolutely. gone so far to say, well, so many people, another 9.9% of people survive. If survival is the benchmark, then all right. And, you know, it hit my wife different than it hit me, different than it hit my son, different than it hit my sister. So that, that's yeah. all I wanted to make a point of is that, you know, we should probably refrain from saying that it's either good, bad, deadly, or nothing because it might be a different set of circumstances for me or you or Dave Williams so that that's that's all absolutely it is what it is but I'm you know I'm just glad that you're okay because to be honest you know I've been listening to you you know obviously for a long time and I really thought maybe you had PTSD you know post talk show disorder from all the negativity that swirls about your head when you're doing this you know you know, I, I I get the sense some days that I'm going to look out the window and I'm going to see people, you know, wandering the streets cold because they can't heat their homes, hungry because they can't afford to eat, and they're wandering the streets, they can't afford gas, they're fighting for recyclables, and then they fall in a pothole and die, and they have to stay there because there's no medical care. I mean, Patty, it's awful. So when I start to think like that, I think, well, you know what, I have to do what my dad used to say. and. He was a neurologist and a very smart, funny guy, and he used to say, when it gets this bad, you just got to do one thing, laugh. So I said, okay, I'm going to try and think of something funny, and I'm going to call Patty and see if I can make him laugh. And I just want to know if you ever experienced show-and-tell, and if you did, what was your best show-and-tell experience, and I'll tell you mine. As a child or an adult? <laughs> <laughs> There you go. Don't you feel better already? As a child, Patty, as a child. Come on. This is a family show. <clears throat> Sorry. Pardon me. Uh, okay. I'm not so sure I can remember a favorite, to be honest with you. Would, you know, like most children, you would have this one piece of memorabilia that you got at the hockey game at the Forum or a toy that you got, and you'd be quite proud to show it off. So I'm thinking yeah. it was probably something along the lines of something I got at a pro pro event one of these one of the years past like a, a baseball from uh, what was exhibition park at the time or a puck from the form it was probably something like that i think i just you know show and tell was just so exciting you know and it's just a lost thing and i hope they bring it back and i got to be honest you know i when i thought about show and tell or i think about the past obviously a lot the older you get the more you think about it and, and simpler happier times and of course i worked in in comedy for years so i tend to go that route anyway in my head especially when things get bad but my favorite thing patty uh, that I brought to show and tell was my father's teeth. And I can remember my mother showing up outside 
played uh, on the school grounds at St. Michael's, and I remember this this awfully firm grasp on my ear as I was being hauled away to the car, and and God love my dad, you know, he thought it was the funniest thing ever, but here he goes off to work as the director of the Grace Hospital with no teeth that day, but I just I just wanted to I just wanted to put something something a little bit lighter out there, Patty, to try to brighten everything up. Yeah, it looks all good. I, as you hear me repeatedly, looking for good news is uh, something that I'm keenly aware of. Now that you mentioned the whole denture bit, I yeah. lost one of my permanent front teeth in grade five. I'm oh. pretty sure I would have shown off my false tooth and plate <laughs> in the classroom <laughs> a couple of times. So I wore that plate for a long, long time until I stopped playing uh, competitive sports because, you know, why spend the money to get a permanent or whatever put in as opposed to just take out your denture and, and live with it. But, uh, yeah, I probably showed that thing off a few times. <laughs> well, see, there you go. Well, I, I hope I helped. I, I don't know if I did. But, you know, looking back at, at things you did as a kid are always funny. I mean, I was a weird kid anyway. I can remember going door to door asking people if they had mysteries they needed solving. And no one ever did. And I was always quite disappointed in that. But I guess who knows. But anyway, Patty, maybe people will uh, think about something they did and that was funny. And they'll and they'll call in and talk about that instead of all the, the sad and dark stuff. Yeah, we talk but, about as much as uh, whatever people want to talk about. Good news, mm-hmm. funny stuff, whatever. Yeah. Bring it on as far as I'm concerned. Janet, I really, really appreciate is. the giggle. Thanks. <laughs> Anytime. I'll call back when I think of something else. Maybe so. I'll tell you about the time I got stuck in the car wash. It was light when I got in. It was dark when I left. What can I say? Anyway, you have a good day and take care. <laughs> you too. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye-bye. <clears throat> okay. Uh, this is from my Twitter feed. Uh, so, young family, they were out in Grossmore National Park, and their child, daughter, left behind their beloved blue teddy bear named Boo. So, they left the park on the 2nd of August. So, if you see little, bl- and it, it's, it's a little blue bear with a black, uh, black nose and black eyes, you're a standard if you can picture it in your mind's eye. I think it has a white belly. I think I can tell that from the picture. So, obviously, we know the attachment that the children will have with their stuffed toys, stuffed animals, and in this case, a teddy bear. So, blue teddy bear named Boo. It was left behind in Grossmore National Park. If you found it and you'd like to see this little girl get Boo back, then you know what to do. You connect with me and I'll connect with the family on your behalf. Okay, let's go ahead and take a break for the news. When we come back, we're going to talk about the announcement made yesterday, I guess between the province and the Registered Nurses Union of Newfoundland and Labrador, with what is being looked at as maybe some hope for short-term incentives to retain the nurses and maybe dissuade some of the 700 nurses who went surveyed, we're talking about or considering, leaving their permanent full-time position for casual work and or the 900 uh, retirees, of the pending retirees, and or the ability to bring them back and the bursaries for third years. It's an interesting package. If it's going to work, we'll know a lot more by the 31st of October. But the leader of the NDP is Jim Din. He's the member for St. John's Center. He's going to chime in on it right after this break. Don't go away. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Welcome back. Before we get to Mr. Din, let's get an update on the accident out around Avondale with David on one. David, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Uh, yes, I just uh, passed the Avondale area that it, uh, where the accident happened, I guess, about uh, 20 minutes ago. They do have the vehicle out of the median now, uh, flipped upright. So what's the flow of traffic looking like? 
not not that bad. One lane in each direction, but uh, it looks like they're probably going to put that vehicle on the flatbed truck, I guess, shortly. So I would assume probably both lanes are going to be open each way probably in the next 30 minutes or an hour, I guess. Well, if people can adjust their travel plans to avoid it, at least for the time being, that particular area around Avondale, probably very wise to do exactly that. Hopefully there's no one seriously injured in that particular incident. I, I'm not going to ask you to chime in because I'm sure you don't know exactly what is the state or the status of the occupant or occupants of that vehicle. So I uh, appreciate the update. David, anything else you want to add? Um, well, I just want to recently say, Patty, uh, I back uh newfoundland on vacation i just went to fogo uh last week and i wanted to say a very uh professional uh crew that managed the ferries that go from farewell to fogo and uh you know i'm very much gonna go back to fogo next year uh, and probably spend some more time uh in fogo because really uh the sea fogo right you have to stay on fogo island for a night or two anyway Absolutely. It's been a long time since I was out there. And I'm not so sure if we're going to have time to take a little tour around the island this summer, but I'd love to go back to Fogo Island. It's a very charming place, to say the very least. Uh, thanks for this, David. Glad you enjoyed your trip over. Okay. All right. Thanks, Matty. You're welcome. Take good care. Okay. Okay, bye-bye. All right, there's the update for that particular accident. Avoid that stretch of highway for the time being, and we'll cross our fingers, hopefully, that the occupant or occupants are okay. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the NDP member for St. John Center. He's the leader of the NLNDP. That's Jim Dean. Good morning, Jim. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty, and thank you for having me on. Happy to have you on the program. So politicians, individuals alike, clamoring for more and different policies to recruit, retain different healthcare professionals. The announcement yesterday was regarding uh, registered nurses. Your takeaway. I'm going to start with a story, uh, Patty. I, when I from the last when I was campaigning last, you know, I, you get to talk to a lot of people at the door. And you get I talk to a lot of nurses, but there's one conversation with one nurse that I had that stands out, and she was a casual nurse, and we got into the discussion about how you know, uh, hey, you know, uh, I guess you're looking for full time and permanent, and you know because. I come from the background like it's when you have that permanent position that you you're able to achieve some stability in your life in your per- professional career and you can you can focus on those things but what took me back is that she said no I'm staying as a casual and the main reason for her was about control over her life and uh, and a work and work life balance and uh, so she had that uh, that I guess it had that gave her the security. That gave her the balance she needed. That gave her the stability. That took me back. And I'm, I'm thinking, uh, you know, I've listened to uh, Miss Coffey uh, speak about it, and I've listened to, in the last few years, uh, numerous of uh, numerous health professionals and, and, and other professionals talk about the same thing. So uh, I, I think in many ways uh, yesterday uh, was a step. Um, and I've got to compliment certainly the nurses' union uh, for their advocacy for their members and for all the nurses who took a, uh, a stand. And, and for if nothing else, at least there's a recognition that uh, obviously that government has recognized that something needs to be done. The other part of this, I guess, this did not happen overnight. Uh, I, I'm safe to say that on your show, you've heard, I would say for years, decades, or even uh, that uh, of the issues, and and this has been a long time coming. 
um, and the problems haven't been addressed. And uh, in this, you might say that chickens have come home to roost, and now we're left with trying to come up with a, a suite of measures to address the issue. So from my point of view, I know, good, but let's go back to that nurse and all nurses who figure that the best way they can achieve, and all health professionals, but nurses in this case, who figure that the best way to achieve some work-life balance is to stay casual. Uh, that's the issue, I think, uh, that it comes down to. So we can throw money at people, and we can uh, we can have a double rate of overtime for a vacation period, and we can do all. And that's that's fantastic. But I think in the end, what uh, what I hear too is that nurses, uh, in this case, are looking for something that will uh, that will give them some semblance of uh, a life that that allows them to look after their patients uh, so they're not burnt out and tired out but they also have the energy and the time left to look after their families and uh, and their loved ones in their lives and themselves sure well i mean um, unless you're on the top of your game it's hard to put in the maximum effort that's required of healthcare professionals here's look far be it for me to say that the nurse the actual nurse uh doesn't think or, or feel what she feels and said to you, fair ball. Here's my immediate reaction, just for the sake of conversation. If this is going to work and more and more nurses are retained, even if it's the, you know, we fill some vacancies because people see that it's a career they'd like to continue to pursue and or the retirees, pending retirees, hang on for a while. Some of those who are considering, those 700 considering moving from full-time to casual, maybe if we retain more nurses, then some of the pressures can be stabilized or alleviated. Consequently, casual might not be as attractive in five years from now as it is today because we've been able to maintain the numbers of uh, nurses in the system and able to allow for a work-life balance and a little bit more flexibility in scheduling. I guess that's the thought behind it. What do you think? I think, uh, look, uh, you, that's a valid point. And what I heard yesterday was that this is going to be reviewed in a year. So there is an attempt here at least to recognize, okay, let's let's evaluate that. You can't, you can't put these measures in place without, okay, let's see how they're working. And maybe that's where it will go. Uh, and I'm hoping that this is not uh, simply a one-off, that uh, that there is a real commitment here now to recognize that, look, th- there, these are long, long-term structural issues that you've got to be addressed. And, may, and if we see the, that there's an improvement there, then, then, uh, then you know what? I think that's good for everyone, good for the nurses, good for the patients. Look, you know, there are, there are regulations around uh, truckers that they've got to take, they can't, they can't, they've got to take so many, t- so much time off. Uh, you know, they can't just drive continuously. Do you want an airplane pilot who's tired and overworked flying the plane that you're on? I would say the the same here. Do you want you want people who are at the top of their game? And if this is about uh, resol- resolving these long-term structural issues, the uh, the ones that we've heard in the media, that I've heard on uh, VOCM, that I've heard on your show from uh, people, then you know what? Uh, then let, let's uh, let's look for it. But what we'll continue to advocate for is certainly. Um, to make sure that government is committed to that long-term plan. And if this plan needs to be readjusted, then let's readjust it to to deal with it. But a key other part of it is you've got Miss Coffee, you've got the unions who represent their their people. They are the ones who are uh, you, uh, the most in touch with their members. They've been speaking this for a while, so let's engage meaningfully with the people who represent them. Not only with nurses, but I would argue other health professionals and other people who are work in, like whether it's schools and so on and so forth. They've been talking about similar issues, and I think you know what. 
the lesson from this is we're going to pay for it anyway. We're going to we're probably paying more for these measures right now uh, to address a long-term, a long-standing issue in terms of health outcomes, uh, budget, and so on and so forth. But I think going forward. I think we, uh, if, if there's a commitment here to long term, then you know what, we could solve the problem for sure. But it's it's not going to be solved overnight, that's for sure. No, and I think it's foolhardy to think that there's anybody who has a solution that will work tomorrow. Oh, and all our problems are solved. So I think between the suite of incentives and policy changes, I mean, there's probably more steps to go, which I think quite clearly includes uh, allowing a nurse practitioner to set up a private clinic and build MCP, maximize scope of practice for anybody involved in the system. I know that comes with some bad with various umbrella representative groups, but who cares? I mean, because it's our overall health uh, that is should be the primary concern, not who gets the bill for what. I think in the end, there's got to be a commitment to publicly fund the public uh, health, and it, it, because in in terms of there, there is, you, who do I want uh, to answer? I want I the. To me, these these services, something that you got the government has got to answer for as well. They're the ones that are tasked with this. So I know where you're coming from, but I think you know you can make a publicly funded public uh, health care system, education, you name it, work. But you've got to have you've got to be willing to invest the money into it, into the workers. But uh, and again, we did not get here. This is successive uh, administrations, whether PC or Liberal, who've been in power, and they've had the opportunity to address it. They have not, Patty. Uh, they've basically stripped contracts, and they've uh, they've made the work uh, working conditions they've, to the point where we're at this. So I think, and 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 not only not only the not only the current administration, but whoever forms the next government has basically got to be committed to taking it to a to a, to a long-term uh, addressing this this can't just simply say well it's not working let's privatize it i think they need to look at uh, have a long hard look both both parties as to how we got here and uh, you know i've dealt with both uh, parties uh, when i was president of the teachers association they're not much different in that way. It takes it takes this kind of public pressure, uh, you bringing up the issue in the media, media outlets bringing it up to finally make uh, to finally make the, our elected representatives to uh, act on this. And I'm at least I look I'm I'm happy with the uh, looking at the suite. Good on them. Uh, now let's make sure we continue with this and address the long-standing issues. Yeah, I don't think anyone thinks this is the end of the road. No. For. Uh, required uh, changes and no argument come from me successive governments have seen what's happening the numbers are clear and if we think that the numbers were clear 10 years ago to lead us where we are today just look at the forecast for the next 10 whether it be with the age of the average age of the population here dementia numbers just whatever people want to think about the numbers are there to consider and planning for health care is absolutely 5 10 15 20 year plans because that's the only way it works expanding the number of seats in the nursing school doesn't work tomorrow but it'll work in five years no, so, and that's the other thing on that. Look, the health accord is the blueprint. So my, uh, I and you raise a good point. Ten, fifteen years. They've set out. They've got a plan. I want. I'm hoping that government, ha- with the, whoever, whoever's in power, has the fortitude, the political will to follow through and the investments that are required. I think that that's that's part of the answer, but you're right. This is not a this is a long with long term to get here, a long term plan to get out of it. And as long as we're as long as I'm seeing improvements, I'm sure you feel the same way. As long as you're starting to see the improvements and you know we're heading in the right direction, I think you know what? We'll be less uh less panicked about uh, events. We'll say, okay, well, at least we're moving in the right direction and things are getting better. Because for me and I think for most 
I don't care who has the good idea. I just want to hear the good idea. Yep. You know, and whoever implements it, whatever your political stripe is, red, blue, or orange, yep. don't care. I don't think most people kind of feel that way. Um, last thought for me, and then I'll let you wrap it up, probably you see Fitchim. You know, the political will to follow through on recommendations of the health accord, that's going to be important because that's yep. where the rubber hits, hits the road. Exactly. And. You know, just your quick thought on this. We know that these numbers were heading down this path, and here we are, and push has arrived at shove. I think the last few years of COVID and some restrictions, what that meant for wait lists and postponements of whether it be elective surgeries or diagnostic imaging, whatever, now all of a sudden, We've seen a bright light shone like never before. Healthcare is always way up through people's concerns when polled come around election time, but we always thought about it as it relates to me and my family. Now I think we've got a much larger contextual view of what it means for everyone in the province. Consequently, the heightened focus and the sharing of stories is more common because we've seen a thing change inside of COVID and pandemic restrictions, and now everybody is hearing everyone else's stories versus what was happening to me, myself. Yeah. Look, uh, I, I, this, this, uh, I guess what you might say COVID has ripped the bandage right out the wound here, and and it's exposed the uh, the, the 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 problem underneath, and now we're seeing it. Uh, I've heard from uh, many people since I've been elected, but you know what? I joined the rank. I've become a statistic. I've lost my family doctor. Um, I'm not panicked yet. But I can tell you uh, that I, I, you know, uh, that there are many people out there, and uh, and I, and I'm going through the process. But in the in the heart of St. John's, you figure it shouldn't be a problem getting a doctor, but it is. It's everywhere across this province, and as a result, we're seeing the effects. Then, and like in not addressing these issues. Emergency rooms are overloading, uh, overloaded, and when we say overloaded, we're not just talking about occupying the chairs. We're talking about that the people who are there to treat you are overloaded. They are stressed, and and they're trying to they're doing their best to deal with people. So to me, uh, it's got to be this has got to be a long-term uh, commitment, and uh, for whoever is in power, and more importantly, I do believe this, it's going to be whoever is in the opposition, and I think the media. That it's it, and uh, I know you will, but the media is got to be forever on their on their backs as to where are we going uh, with this uh, and how and how are we getting there this can't be a news story that, that hits the headline and then fades it's got to be I think there's going to be a long-term commitment on everyone in this province to make sure that whoever is in power uh, adheres to uh, uh, the, the plan adheres to the, the the measures we need to take and to make sure that uh, that uh, they know whoever form of government that we have a we have an expectation that you're going to resolve this and you're going to be we're going to be forever moving forward on this. Appreciate the time, Jim. Take care, sir. Thank Take you very care. much, Patty. You're welcome. Bye-bye. That's Jim Din, uh, Jim Din, NDP member, St. John Center, the interim leader of the party. Let's take our final break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number three. Caller, you're on the air. Hello? Hello. Oh, how are you, Patty? Top of the morning to you. How are you? I could not be better. How about you? Uh, good. Um I was listening to that lady earlier. She was uh, regaling you with a with a bit of humor, and, and then shortly after that, you mentioned the little girl who lost her teddy bear, and it, it just reminded me of a funny story when I was uh, when I was a child, uh, just a kid, I guess, growing up, and I had a teddy bear, and I guess I had it for a long while, but I can remember. <laughs> uh, you know, I had it for so long, I guess it started getting dirty or whatever, and my mother, I guess it was my mother who decided to throw it out and without telling me, and somehow I happened to notice <clears throat> when the garbage when the garbage truck came down the street, 
I happened to notice him with my teddy bear in his hand, uh, the garbage man putting it in the truck. I ran out of the house and ran down the stairs, ran down the street, and I was like, give me my GD teddy bear back. <laughs> it's amazing the attachment that uh, children will have to whatever it is, the blanket, the toy, the teddy bear, what have you. Uh, it well, reminds me, you know, talk about getting something thrown out. I had a raggedy old Levi's jean jacket. That was really kind of shabby, but I loved it, and Dad threw it in the garbage one day. I was beside myself. Uh, anyway, that just popped my head, and that has nothing to do with anything. But, yeah, yeah I mean, the chasing memories. around for your bear. Memories, they uh, just pop in your head, right? Uh, I guess that's Yeah, the memories for, uh, well, what did you say about the beer? Well, th- you know, another bear story comes to mind is my youngest uh, had this bear that was given to us by a teacher friend of my wife's. And, buddy, I tell you what, that bear spent a lot of time in the arms of that child. <laughs> oh, yeah. And it's still around. It's in the linen closet in the hallway. Anyway. I, I can almost picture in my mind's eye, you know, that teddy bear that I had, the, the color of it and all. But I, I'll tell you one more funny story because I know we're at the top of the clock here. Uh my brother told me a funny story one time about when when his son was young uh my my brother was out staying on his back deck and his his son was only a tot at the time and his son came out and came over to his father and he said hey dad what are you doing and he said i'm staying in the deck and he probably you know explained to him you know why he was staying that you know to preserve the wood or whatever and and my brother told me this, right? And it was kind of funny because he said it was like a proud dad moment, right? Like, you know, your son's coming up to you. He's curious. And, you know, he said, you know, that's a good sign that, you know, he, he'll probably go on to be smart and, you know, maybe get into college. And he, he was, he felt like that was one of these proud dad moments, right? So his son goes off again after he explains to him what he's doing. And he said, his son came back two minutes later and said, hey, Dad, what are you doing? <laughs> and he said, he, that proud dad moment kind of went away. I thought that was the funniest story I ever heard. It left as quickly as it came and happened. Uh, good stuff to end off the show. A bit of a, another chuckle here on the program. Thanks for making time for us. Okay, take care. You have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. There you go. Good stuff right there. All right. Uh, Good show today. Big thanks for everyone who supports the program. And regatta or not, we'll be picking up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.